0: Hey guys, before we get started, I have a little secret for you. Come here. Did you know that we are on YouTube? That is right. You can watch these interviews live, uncut, by going to youtube.com forward slash Heather Parody. That is P-A-R-A-D-Y. I promise you it's another level watching these on YouTube. So again, find us over there by searching for Heather Parody or Unconventional Leaders. And make sure you hit that subscribe button.
1: We all get signs in our life. We all get those those moments where a door opens and Often we don't see them. Often we do see them, but don't have the courage to walk through. But, mm-hmm. you know, you do so at your peril. Ignore it at your peril. My biggest motivator in a lot of ways was the fear of being uh, 80 years old on my deathbed and having regrets. What have I done to Cambodia? What have I tried this? I would, ain't going to have no regrets now.
0: I've always
1: felt fear. I was born with several Father.
0: I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to see. And I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader.
1: Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted.
0: Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up, use their voice, and make an impact in this world. Scott Neeson spent 26 years in the film industry, lastly as the president of 20th Century Fox International. He managed revenues in excess of $1.5 billion and oversaw the release and marketing of several blockbuster Hollywood films, including Braveheart, Titanic, Star Wars, and X-Men. In 2004, Scott left the film industry to set up Cambodian Children's Fund after a life-changing visit of the Southeast Asian country. Paying for all the startup costs out of his own pocket, Scott started CCF to help just a handful of children. CCF now educates over 1,900 children living in one of the most impoverished parts of Cambodia. And supports families with community based projects. What is up, my friends? So, welcome to today's episode. If this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host, and the show is for those who are going against the grain, stepping up, using their voice, and making an impact in their own unique way. Wow, I've just, I, I don't even know what to say, guys. This interview was mind-blowing. It was such an honor to connect with uh, Scott and not only hear about just the incredible success that he had here in the States, in the film industry, entertainment industry, all the things that he was able to accomplish, but also to how he was able to really tune into his intuition and the thing that he was called to do and be, be willing to give it all up and help a group of children. He shares a really powerful story about a little girl that he Literally pulled out of a trash dump and changed the course of her lives for between 30 and $40 in about 45 minutes of his time and how he just could not shake that, what he says, a sense of accomplishment that he had never felt before. Today, we talk about why he believes that human interaction is one of the most important things we can do if we are looking to make an impact in this world, why if we want to have happiness, we have to live up to our potential, and why we all underestimate the power that we do have. Guys, check out his work, Cambodia Children's Fund, and he talks about a short film that is about five minutes long that shares what they have created over the past 15 years in Cambodia. That is linked in the show notes as well. Make sure you check them out, and if there is someone in your life who you think of when you're listening to this, maybe they have talked to you about wanting to follow their heart and make a big jump in their life and follow after something that God is calling them to do. If you would just shared this episode with them. You can take a screenshot of it and text it to them or send it in a DM. But I think this is a really powerful message that Scott has with us today. So thank you so much for doing your part and helping us share it with the unconventional leader in your life. All right, my friends, let's get into this powerful conversation with Cambodian Children's Fund founder, Scott Neeson.
1: Well, you yeah, know, I grew up uh, in a working class town in a small town, city, north of of a very small capital city. So back then, um, the only employer in the area was General Motors. They were the big employer. I didn't finish high school. So um, my big dream was to get a job quite seriously. I applied for the production line at General Motors, but I hadn't finished high school so couldn't get on there. Government work scheme, they had a process whereby a lawyer to take you on and the government would pay half the salary so you'd get work experience. That was for people like myself who were considered uh, chronic unemployed, didn't have high school, and we lived in very uh, high unemployed areas. So my first job they put me on was as a projectionist um, in a drive-in movie theatre. I would work there at nights and then in the daytime um, I would work in the office, office assistant. So that's, uh, getting that job was great. I mean, no one had jobs where I came from and I didn't really have much dreams beyond that. You know, never expected to even move to Sydney. You know, it, took a, it was a big leap moving from my old country town to Sydney where I did very well in my career and then I moved to Los Angeles to head up marketing, and then I was made president uh, later on at 20th Century Fox International. So I didn't, in the early days, have any real dreams other than to get a job, hang out with my friends. So yeah, getting a job was a big deal back then.
0: You start off in Scotland. You were born in Scotland, right? Born in
1: Scotland, yeah. I, and my family emigrated when I was five years old, so I grew okay. up in in Australia.
0: Okay, okay. So that what a journey. There, from you know, yeah. moving around different countries and then getting into an industry that I'm assuming nobody in your immediate family or no connections or did you have connections no.
1: here? No, as I say, I got it, it was a, the only reason I ended up in the film business per se was as a projectionist. The government job scheme wow. I found it, it was completely coincidental. I mean, it could have been at a mechanic. It could have been anything. Wow! But it was one particular place that had a they had a chain of drive-in theaters. And so I was wow. um, projectors at night and then running around dropping off films, posters and things during the daytime.
0: Now, was there like a moment where you're like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I want to lean into this or where you just I kind of walk away. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was, you know, I was uh, I was a, you know, a little bit rebellious. Uh, I just wanted, I like I like working there. It was fun, but I didn't have any real passion for films back then. It was just it was a job and it, um, I got my salary. And that was it. When it was five o'clock, I was out the door back then. But um, once I started to get a bit of career ambition, then it really took off. I was moved to Sydney. And then I was poached by another film company and then by 20th Century Fox. And it just kept on going. So sort of every two years, I'd get another job offer to move elsewhere. And so it was, uh, it was very strange. You know, you come from working yeah. class roots. Uh, neither of my parents had um, big careers, and any careers, really. So it was, uh, I was the anomaly.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say because I know people just work so hard to, to make it in entertainment business For yeah. say, Why do you think you were able to kind of move so fast into it? Do you, do you believe in like calling and like God was just moving things for you or was it luck? I mean, did you have yeah. something that they were looking for that most people didn't have? Like what was it? Yeah,
1: uh, I think, well, first of all, there is was a great deal of luck. I think in any career, being in the right place at the right time, um, is very important. This, I think every career, there's a degree of luck in there. Uh, I had a very good intuitive sense about films, um, what would work, how to market them, mm. and that served well. And I had a natural ability to um, bring teams together. I could get very good teams of people uh, to work mm. with me, very collaborative. Um, the teams I got together were always very loyal, uh, very hardworking. We shared a vision, and yeah. that always helped. Both when I was in Australia and then when I first moved to Los Angeles in the role of marketing. Wow. It's been that intuitive sense and uh, just knowing how to manage people, get a common goal. Now, you, I
0: think it was 26 years in the, the industry, something like that.
1: In business, yeah.
0: You reached, you know, just this pinnacle point most of the people would just dream about. And you took a trip. And yes. things just start unraveling for you. And uh, I, I really want to dig into your work in Cambodia and the things that you've learned over the past several years, because this show is all about making a difference in the world in your own unique way and leaning into your, what I call a calling. Uh, but if you'll just go back to that moment of like, you know, you're, you're the president of, of this huge company, you're meeting all these stars, you're, you're traveling, yeah. you're having, you know, a boat. I, lo- I know you love it so much. you were living a good life and doing good work. What made you decide to give it all up?
1: Well, um, I've been with Fox for 10 years. I didn't renew my contract. I got a better offer to move to Sony Pictures, and I signed the contract, and I negotiated to get five weeks off in between, and that's when I went traveling. And the purpose of the travel was to get back to my sort of Buddhist roots. So I flew into Thailand, uh, wanted to see Uncle Wat in Cambodia and uh, the other Buddhist monuments and travel up to India to the birthplace of yoga, which was Rishikesh. Um, I went to Phnom Penh, only because uh, the only way to get to Uncle Wat back then was through Non Penh, and I met a friend of a friend that told me to meet up, and he was running a small charity. It, it was poverty voyeurism, but I asked him uh, if it was any place in Cambodia where there was extreme poverty, but uh, no one there to help, no sort of uh, aid organisations, people on the ground because I wanted to see what, I guess I wanted to feel again, feel something uh, besides just work stress and corporate stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went out there and it just uh, blew my mind. It was like the apocalypse. This, I didn't know where I was going, I only had an address, but it was the landfill, this giant uh, 11 hectare uh, garbage dump and there were about oh, 5, 1,500 children there and maybe 2,000 adults a lot, and it was a seething, working landfill. Dump trucks coming in, graders, the stink, the heat. The heat is, un, I can't, it's hard to describe it. So, the temperatures are oh, 150, 160 degrees at any given time because mm. um, obviously it's a tropical country, but garbage, um, as it decomposes, it gives off methane. Methane burns. So just below about a, a, um, three or four deep down, it's on fire. and. You'll see on landfills are lots of plumes of smoke, and that's because the ground's on fire. So you have to be very careful where you stepped. Um, yeah. So you got this terrible, terrible um, heat. The stench, of course, is horrendous. And kids were living there. Um, some had been left there by, in fact, about 40% had been left there by parents that no longer wanted them. Mothers who remarried, the new husbands didn't want some other guys' kids, so the mother would just leave them there. Occasionally a father. So they were. They'd work uh, until they were exhausted, then they'd burrow into the garbage, sleep, wake up, and do it all over again. Make enough money to eat for that day, and there was there was no Plan B. There was no way they were going to get off the garbage dump. That was just gut wrenching. I always had the the classic um, the classic prejudices about what well, I didn't give to charity when I was in LA. I made a lot of money. I gave to World Vision, uh, St Jude's, a couple of them, but nothing significant and i always had the rationalisation or the belief that one is that you, and you don't know where your money's going. You hear all of these stories of people getting rich off of charities, big salaries, um, big office expenses. The other rationale is that it's not my problem, it's the other side of the world. Um, why should I worry? I pay all these taxes. And the third reason was that, you know, you turn on the TV, you see all the poverty, you see people asking for money. If I gave away all my salary, I knew that I'd still sit on TV. I couldn't make a difference in the world. Now, standing on the garbage dump with these kids who had no way out, none of those things mattered because I knew where my money would go. It was my problem because if I didn't do something, then no one else would. And you can make a difference. And then while I was there, a child went by tiny, uh, looked about five or six but. Uh, it was an eight year old girl, and through the translator, I spoke to her. Her mother was there. I couldn't tell it was a boy or a girl because they were so swathed in all of their clothes. All you could see were the eyes. And they do that one, because of the heat, and two, because they've got no place to leave their belongings. They don't have any place to live. And with the translator, found out the mother was there. The girl and the mother were working on the garbage dump and living there. And Mm -hmm. the most horrific part was that they had a younger sister who was only two, but she was dying of typhoid. She was in a terrible state. I still got some old video footage, but but within 45 minutes of discussions and being a corporate guy, my whole job was about fixing problems. So through the translator, being very businesslike, I got them a house a rental house, which was a rental room, I should say, which is $15 a month with the translator who also worked with the government. Uh, I arranged for her to get into public school. I arranged to get this young girl into hospital, and it took, as I say, 45 minutes. I arranged that I would send about $30 a month across to my friend, he would distribute it to the family. It was felt great. Went back to the hotel and it sunk in. It sunk in, my goodness, it hit me like a. Um, like a truck that $30 a month, maybe 35 a month, in 40 minutes of my time. I had fundamentally changed the direction of this girl's life and her family. And I, it just blew my mind that I turned her life around from garbage dump to school and beyond. I never in my life um, ever thought I had the, the power, uh, the ability to change. I always thought that, like a lot of people, that, I'm pretty much powerless. You know, all these things are so complicated. um, They're so foreign to us. They're tragic. But, hey, what are we going to do with just one person? That had more impact on me than the the horrors of the dump because we see horrors every day. Um, We tend to get a little desensitized. Even though it shocked me, and I could have walked away feeling all traumatized and sad. But the fact I changed this girl's life was just remarkable to me. It hit me in such a strange way. Incidentally, she graduated university last month with a degree in finance and her little sister wow. starts university. The sick one starts university next year. That's what started it. I mean, I, I didn't know I had so much uh, potential to help. So the next day, instead of going to Uncle Rock, I went back there and got Two other kids into homes um, with elder, elderly people who didn't have any parents. And also, through the same guy, I got them into school. And within about a week, I think I had about 15 kids off the garbage dump in school, living in a room with either extended family. You know, there was a very, a sense of contentment, accomplishment I never felt before. Yeah, it was something entirely new. I knew I could run businesses, I knew I'd make a lot of money, I was doing very nicely. So I, mean, I didn't make, I didn't want to go back to start my, my Sony job, but living in LA, I'd seen the worst midlife crises and I, I was always wary of it. You know, guys, they uh, they leave uh, very good marriages to yeah. run off with a young woman, buy a red Corvette and wear a toupee or something. And I wanted to give it 12 months to make sure it was real. I cheated and that 12 months I started to sell everything, put my house on the market, the boat. I was certain. So I would spend one week in Cambodia, three weeks in Los Angeles or travelling the world before that 12 months was up. And by the time, uh, a year later, I'd already been there, registered the charity, rented a building and hired some staff to look after the kids that we couldn't get into foster homes or kinship care. So we had, at the end of 12 months, I think about about 40 kids um, in full-time school. You know, interesting fact, of the first 200 kids I took off that garbage dump. 70% 70% have graduated university, which is a phenomenal number. I don't think developed countries could, could do that. And what blew me away, it really shocked me was um, I'd be on the garbage dump every day for the first five years I was there. Kids, 80, 90% of the time, they wouldn't ask for money. They would ask if I could get them into school. And that was even before they knew. I. This was before they knew that I was getting kids into school. So it was just somehow that these kids, even as young as seven, knew that the only way they were going to get off this wretched place long term, and if they had family, potentially save their family, was to get an education. Because if I gave them $5, $10, they would get through it. They'd get food for maybe a week or two, but then it'd be the same again. They were smart enough to see that they were earning between $0.25, $0.50 a day.
0: Going back home and saying, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna give this a year, and you sold everything, left your career, and moved. I, I know a listener had asked this, um, and I was wondering, like, did people just think you were completely back crazy? Were they like, Scott, what are you doing? And like trying to yeah. stop you? What? Yeah,
1: I was like a – I felt like a fish swing against the current because – it's not, uh, everyone thought I was crazy. Even my best friends, good caring friends thought I was crazy. And also there's the, uh, the societal or corporate impact when if you're president of a studio, you've got 50, 100 people below trying to push up to get to a job. And so that gives you a false sense of the, the appeal of the job. You know, you're head, you're president, and there's people who want your job. Everyone's clawing for it. So, You naturally want to cling on to this job. You think it must be something very special if everyone else wants it. Mm -hmm. But you know, it started to dawn on me that I didn't didn't really want it that much. It's just that everyone was telling me you need to get bussed over. You fly first class or private if you're with actors. I've met, worked with all the actors and went to all the film festivals. But near the end, you know, the the Academy Awards I'd give away my tickets. I'd rather be on the boat with my friends. It was starting to the gloss was wearing off. Yeah. I never quite fell into the Hollywood trap. I was always fairly grounded. My friends made sure of that. But yeah, everyone thought I was crazy. I remember my dad too, because uh my dad back then, you know, we'd been very working class, and I was the one kid in the family who'd made it big. In my yeah. contract, you fly out to Los Angeles first class. So when he finally, about 60 or so, he finally realized that I was going to be okay. Didn't have to worry. So I called him up and said, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to move to a landfill and not Cambodia. He, he just let out a shriek. So I didn't get many people backing me on that. Yeah. Ended up, he thought Cambodia it made it the happiest years of his life. I mean, coming to Cambodia, being around the kids, he's never been happier. So he finally got it. But uh, yeah, everyone's was on to me. There was an incident, I don't uh, I've talked about it many times, and it was a prophetic, either an epiphany or a sign from God or something. But almost 12 months to the day since I made my promise, I was with a major actor. Uh, we'd flown, or he'd flown to Tokyo. I'd flown there. He took a, you know, the studio gave him a Gulfstream, a bunch of friends with him, and I settled him into the hotel. And then I took a, as soon as he was settled, Handed them over to publicity staff, and I flew straight down to Phnom Penh. And one of the grannies that was helping me, she's still around, Ye Bun Sen. She she took she was all she was all um, anxious. She took me to a spot in the perimeter of the garbage dump, and there were four kids there. They're um, in various stages of dying. Again, they had typhoid. Uh, no one knew where they came from. No one would take them to hospital. They didn't know how. Um, and the, everyone was sort of looking at me like, I'm going to fix this. I mean, I don't know what to do. I was in a foreign country. I didn't have kids, but I just knew that we're going to perish. And this and is swear to God, they, uh, my cell phone rang. My office patched through the actor and his agent. And the actor was furious. He was on the tarmac in Japan and he wouldn't get on the Gulf Stream. His agent was carrying on. And what had happened was I was with Sony Pictures and we had put a PlayStation on the plane for him, and all of his games were Xbox. And so in the midst of all of this, I was on my cell phone, and it was such a surreal conversation. And there was a a, a break in the conversation. And he said to me, he said, you know, sorry, Scott, but my life wasn't meant to be this difficult. Now, those situations, experiences, they don't happen by accident. To this day, I mean, 15 years later, I still can't think of two more extremes in life Literally, I try and think of two more extremes of poverty and excess, and I still can't beat that. So I decided it's best not to ignore those sort of signs, and went back. And that's when I resigned and started the process, leaving. Yeah.
0: What What is your perspective on um, just making an impact and difference in this world? Because I know I was just talking to somebody earlier today. They were. Sometimes we think that making an impact means. Getting to the certain position and influencing, you know, tons of people and being like a celebrity or starting, not necessarily in the entertainment industry, but just known, being known and um, having this certain level of success. And for some reason, especially here in America, I know that that's so intertwined with, you know, if we're important, if, if what we're doing matters. And sometimes these small little things, like thirty dollars, this girl's life. What? How is your perspective on making a difference in this world, and impact and success? Like over the past fifteen, sixteen years, how has it changed?
1: I've become far more effective at uh, the change, so mm-hmm. I know how to deliver it with the uh, the greatest efficiency, the greatest fairness. Having lived in the U.S., I mean, I can understand how difficult it is for people because um, you can't just give thirty dollars because one, you um, you don't really know where the money's going. There's so much bureaucracy. Um, there's so many people competing for the money. It's a lot more expensive. $30 doesn't really go that far. Um, you can perhaps get shelter and uh, feed a homeless person, but you know the next day they're going to be back on the streets again. Mm-hmm. And those are sort of issues that people face. However, uh, my lesson was that we, everyone, we underestimate the power we do have. Yeah. And for me, if, if I did If I was back in America knowing what I did, I wouldn't so much look at giving money as having a personal intervention with people that had the issues, whether it's drug addiction, uh, homelessness, illness, chronic illness, um, human interaction is most important to me. I spent so many evenings with people who are dying, uh, mostly old people, but they like to have me there and uh, they like to be there. They like me to be there holding their hand when they pass away. And yeah, it's a it's a it's an enormous privilege just to be there when they take the last breath. It's hard for a child of course, but yeah, but to be there it's a and to have to be the person that comforts them. Of course being Buddhist, they're ready to move on. They think they're very blessed and having me there makes them feel calm. And So the first time I was asked to stay there while they passed away, I was kind of freaked out. But they're sort of blessings that um, I don't take for granted.
0: Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you just a couple of listener questions. I know Tom's winding down. Justin Rambo wanted to know what's the internal reward for giving up what society would deem successful in chasing your heart? What is the internal reward of that?
1: There's a great video that would tell the story better, but I get to see firsthand kids who came off the garbage dump when um, they were five, six, eight, ten years old, terrible state, to see them now in school um, or moving on to uh, university, confident, smart, and with amazing sense of values and ethics. Because in ter- in, we, have, we have education, we also have leadership, and the third stream is what we call the wisdom program, and that's where the grannies help teach the children about uh, tradition, culture, values, because because of the Pol Pot days in the 70s, the parents are basically, they're just uh, blank. They didn't get to experience any childhood. So seeing these kids go into society with leadership skills, uh, a sense of values, ambition, um, amazing. I've got a video which just shows the kids when I found them, how they are now. Amazing. You know, a girl who was seven. She came off the garbage dump. She's now silver belt. Sorry, silver medal, black belt karate champion national. Um, our kids won the robotics championships for Cambodia. Went to Hungary. Those things are just so rewarding. They're so full of joy. Got that sense of entitlement. They feel like everything they get is just magic. So no regrets. No, no regrets whatsoever. No. I miss things occasionally, like I sure. mentioned.
0: Yeah. Uh, last one I'll take yes. it here. Um, it's uh, Alex Jody's asked, what experiences uh, did you draw from um, the entertainment world that you can now still apply to this life?
1: Yeah, the, the key pieces, there was only one piece I draw on, and it's important, and that was how to structure the programs efficiently, um, yeah. how to run them with effect, cost-effectiveness, how to structure an organisation? We have six hundred employees across um, sixty-five different programs. Wow! Uh, we have a hospital, probably the only free hospital for the for all ages. Um, Thirty-five thousand a year maternal care program. We've built five hundred homes. Um, and a separate piece is we we're in a partnership with Cambodian National Police to cut down on child sex crimes, um, 300 cases a year. So it's all very intensive. Any it's documentaries
0: or film of that?
1: There is a film, uh, a drama being in pre-production. It may start production later this year by a very good filmmaker. Very good. I'm not really involved. He's got the rights. I saw the rights. So I think he may start end of this year. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: Very cool. cool. I have one final question I ask all my guests, but before then, I just first of all want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to share your story with us, and also leading by example for us who want to make a difference in the world and rethinking what impact looks like, and um, being brave enough to follow that calling on your heart and uh, Mm. the unconventional thing. Where can people find out more about your work, uh, donate, um, become a part of this this mission?
1: We have a website, Cambodian Children's Fund. Also, uh, there's a a really good video. Some I've got a Facebook page. I think it's uh, Scott Neeson CCF, and there's a terrific video on there with Coldplay music. It's five minutes. Yeah, it's Coldplay. Yeah, they gave us <laughs> the okay. rights to Chris Martin That's gave the rights to use it. That's a really beautiful look at what's been accomplished over those years. I don't know if you've got a website. I could send a link to if anyone cool. see it. You can't watch it without having a tear in your eye. Even I can't. Mind you, I know for the kids. But if you go there, have a look. Even um, just want to have a read, sentence whatever you think. If you, if you haven't got money, that's fine too. Just have a read of what's been done. Give some, uh, I like people to understand their own potential. It's mm. so important. If you want to have happiness, you really have to live up to potential, find your groove, and listen to those. We all get signs in our life. We all get those those moments where a door opens, and often we don't see them. <laughs> Often we do see them but don't have the courage to walk through. But, mm-hmm. you know, you do so at your peril. Ignore it at your peril. My biggest motivator in a lot of ways was the fear of being uh, 80 years old on my deathbed and having regrets. What have I done to Cambodia? What have I tried this? I would ain't going to have no regrets now. On you my will death, No. I'll have a lot of kids around, a lot of young adults around.
0: Mm-hmm. All of that will be linked in the show notes guys connect with, with Scott. And I was going to ask you, um, let's say we were to go back in time and that this, this man just got off this life-changing trip, seeing things that he's never seen before, had this experience of just this $30 exchange for this child's life. And he said, I'm going to give it 12 months. He goes back home and he's just in the grind of that year and probably wrestling with, you know, Is the start decision. If it's not listening to all these voices and I don't know what kind of inner turmoil you might've had during that year, but if you were to go sit with him now and tell him one thing that you understand now that he did not know back then, what would
1: that be? My belief, and this is a strange thing is that, you know, all of us are out there, uh, trying a common element of people, but it's a pointless uh, exercise because one, happiness is subjective. It's not you know, it's not even subjective as amorphous. We don't know what happiness is and we don't really know when we're happy or what makes us happy. Mm. My very strange advice to him would be to um, plan for a really glorious death. And the reason why I know it sounds morbid, wow but the reason why is that you want when you're when you're on your deathbed, you want to have no regrets. You want to have done all the things you'd want to do, whether it's you know, ask someone to marry you, whether it's see the Himalayas, whether it's um to raise a big family, you don't want to have those regrets. So if you accept the fact you're going to die one day and, know and plan to have a, a beautiful death so that you've got no regrets in your life, that would be the advice I would give him. So powerful.
0: I want to give a big thank you to Scott once again for coming on today's episode. Again, it is org That is linked in the show notes. Check out what they have going on. It's so powerful. And friends, if you need any additional support in your unconventional journey, please head over to Facebook and type in unconventional leaders. We have a private community over there of amazing people and would love to have you a part. All right, guys, I will see you in our next episode.